think of a time when you changed your mind about something or about someone. Uh, maybe you changed your mind about an issue in politics. You started looking more closely at an issue and decided that how you had been raised or what you had thought before was not part of your uh, understanding or your new moral compass. Or maybe you grew to come and change your mind about a person that you know, somebody who uh, you really disliked <laughs> before, and then you get to a place where you understand them better. You learn a little bit about their story or uh, something from their past and it helps you to understand who they are and you come to uh, like them or even love them. Or the other way around, maybe you really loved someone and then you were hurt or betrayed and your mind changed, you no longer trusted that person. Uh, or maybe you change your mind about some food, right? That's pretty common from childhood to adulthood to change your mind about different kinds of food. I always think about spinach when I think about food because you know, when I was a kid, I only ever knew spinach out of a can, you know, the old uh, Popeye can, uh, just from like the cartoon Popeye, where he would like squeeze the can in his mouth and his muscles would bulge out and he'd save the day. And so we had Popeye canned spinach. And that's the only way I knew that spinach existed. I don't think I was an adult uh, or I had just become an adult when I realized that spinach like grew out of the ground and could be like bright green and crunchy because all I knew was the slimy, dark green nastiness from the can. <laughs> and so as I grew up, I changed my mind about spinach. A silly example, but uh, you know, my grandparents had a garden. We ate all kinds of fresh vegetables, but I had never seen fresh spinach in my life until I'd become an adult. So you can change your mind about a lot of things as you grow over time, as you learn more, as you experience life more. And so over the next six weeks, as we are in the Lenten season, we are talking about changing our minds. You might recall from our Ash Wednesday service and last Sunday sermon that we talked about Romans chapter 12. If you look at the first two verses there, you'll see this beautiful appeal to us by the mercies of God to present ourselves, our whole selves, as living sacrifices, to, to give of ourselves to the world, and in so doing, not to be conformed to the value system of the world, to the way the world thinks about people or things, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. There's another passage of scripture, the same person, the Apostle Paul writes that we should have a mind like Christ. And so we're all trying to have our minds changed, transformed from our own way of looking at things to God's way of looking at things. And in the religious world, that word we use is repent, right? Repent in, in the Greek metanoia, change your mind. But the word repent has just become too religious a word. We don't use it anywhere else, right? Like nobody says like, I'm going to like repent of regular soda and just go diet, diet soda all the way. Wouldn't you look at them? Are you crazy? What, what are you talking about? Right? And if somebody's like, you know what? I need to repent uh, and get my wallet. I left it at home. So uh, I'm just going to turn around, repent. Because <laughs> that's what repent is in, in the Hebrew tradition, is to turn around, to change your mind, to align yourself more closely with God. But it's a religious word that doesn't mean much in the 21st century. And so we're just going to call it changing our minds. 
And so over the next six, six weeks, we're going to actually talk about famous Christians who changed their minds in big ways, uh, who realized something by reading scripture and, and scouring the tradition of Christianity, uh, praying to God and listening to God in times of silence or meditation or nature, and were transformed or renewed and had a change of heart and a change of mind. And I thought we would start that journey together by me sharing uh, a way in which I changed my mind uh, many years ago, a way that my mind was renewed and I was transformed by uh, experience and a, a deep study of scripture. So today, let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> well, specifically homosexuality. I know we really want to talk about this, right? I mean, we do. We have to, okay? I know that uh, it can be difficult sometimes to have this conversation. Uh, for some of you, you don't want to talk about it because you are gay and you're tired of hearing about it all the time. For some of you, you're uncomfortable talking about it. You've been told it's evil and wrong and, and we just... We just want to get away from it, right? And there's this whole slew of people in between who just want to get along. And I'm one of those, actually. <laughs> I just want to get along. But we have to talk about tough issues. And so over the next six weeks, we are going to talk about tough issues, issues that are dividing people, issues that are hurting people. But we're going to try to do it through the wisdom of Scripture and through this idea that it's okay to be transformed. It's okay to change your mind. So we are going to talk about homosexuality today. You know, in my early 20s, I was uh, in college and then dropped out of college, and I put all my chips into Starbucks. That was going to be my career, and it was for a long time. And working at Starbucks was one of the greatest experiences I ever had. I met the coolest people in the world. You think about the cliche, hipster Starbucks barista, and I met all of them. I met the ones that were too cool to talk to you. It came across really rude, right? I had a shift manager like that. I'm not going to say her name, but I know it. It's right here. And she was so rude because she was just too cool to talk to anybody. Uh, I remember the hipster baristas, the, the, the forerunners, the, the early adopters of skinny jeans, right? Before that was a cool thing to do. Uh, the early adopters of tattoos and nose piercings and tongue piercings and all those crazy things. Those were your Starbucks baristas 20 years ago. <laughs> and so I worked in this cool space, and I got really confused in my early 20s. You see, I'd gotten baptized when I was about 16 years old, and I was raised to believe that it was really wrong to be gay. But when I started working at Starbucks, I made all these friends who were gay. And it was really confusing to me because they looked more like Jesus than my friends who follow Jesus. It was really confusing to me because I was trying to understand why my Jesus-following friends seemed so cranky and afraid and stingy all the time and really judgy a lot of the time. And then my gay friends, some of whom were also Jesus followers but weren't allowed to really be open about that 20 years ago, they looked like Jesus. I mean, they forgave easily. They had joy in their heart despite being oppressed and beat up and bullied. Uh, they just had this core joy. They also had this core sadness that reminded me of the man of sorrow who was Jesus. And so I was really struggling in my early 20s. Like My experience is telling me something different than what I've been taught that Scripture says. And so I had to ask myself a tough question. Was I taught wrong? Or do I just want to leave this Christian faith altogether? 
because my experience is contradicting what I've been taught. So I have kind of a crisis of faith, right? Do I just leave Christianity behind because it's not working? And I see these people over here are full of joy and forgiveness and peace. They look like Jesus. So maybe I should just leave the faith altogether. Or am I missing something? This crisis of faith. Sometimes you might experience that when you're changing your mind about a big thing. A big thing in politics, a big thing in theology, a big thing in your family. You might feel tempted to abandon your faith because it doesn't feel right. But I'm going to tell you a lot of times when that happens, maybe not every time, but a lot of times that's happening because you've been taught a toxic understanding of how we do life. And it's done a lot of damage. So we do have to change our minds. So how did I get there? How did I change my mind? Well, I did the nerdy thing because I am a Bible nerd all the way. I love my Bible. I love to read it. I love to study. I love to, to look at the problems that seem to present themselves, the apparent contradictions. I like to figure stuff out. I like to dive into the Hebrew words and the Greek words and the Aramaic words. I'm a total dork when it comes to the Bible. And so all through my 20s, I studied Scripture carefully. You know, this is before the days when you could just up on Amazon and you could Google like, you know, gay Christian or affirming theological perspectives. It was harder to find those things in the early 2000s. So really, I was figuring it out on my own. I was reading scripture and looking at the different verses and contexts, reading history and looking for any kind of input that I could find. And I came to a point where I realized that we are talking about apples and oranges when it comes to homosexuality in the Bible and in the 21st century. Now, there's certainly some overlap, and we need to talk about the overlap and what the problem is, but in general, we're not talking about the same things. So I thought the easiest thing to do would be to talk through what I went through, which is to talk through the six passages of Scripture that are often called the clobber verses or the clobber passages because they're used to sort of clobber the LGBTQ plus community over the head, like, see, this is why you're evil, or this is why you're wrong, or you're broken. There are six basic passages of Scripture. There's a story in Genesis chapter 19 called the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, probably very familiar with this. And if you know the shorthand version, it is that God destroyed these cities because people were gay, right? That's the easy shorthand version that you're probably most familiar with. You might be surprised to know that that's not really the subtext of what's going on in that story. I'm not going to do a whole sermon on this today, but if you go read it carefully, you will find that there's a lot more going on in that story. And we're going to talk about that in a second. Two other passages that are considered clobber verses are Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which both reference a man lying down with a man. And, uh, these are a little bit tricky because they're buried in a whole list of rules. Some rules that we completely ignore nowadays. Rules like not eating rare steak, no bloody food at all. Rules like not wearing mixed textiles. So if you've got a polyester blend, which this no doubt is, you're in violation of Levitical law, right? And I don't mean to like minimize some laws in Leviticus have carried over into our lives, like one of the greatest commands, the greatest command Jesus said to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that comes out of Leviticus. So I don't want to dishonor the, the whole book and say it doesn't apply anymore, but it's really complicated because there's a lot of stuff in there that doesn't apply, and how do we decide? 
That's the question. So we're going to come to that too. There's a, a little passage in Romans chapter one that speaks to uh, men abandoning the natural function with women and burning toward one another. Uh, there's this sort of uh, hint towards homosexual behavior in Romans chapter one. In first Corinthians six, there's another sort of list that the apostle Paul makes, and he throws in uh, this group of people called arsenoquites in this group. So fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, uh, the effeminate, and homosexuals. Now, the word homosexual is a modern translation. It wasn't translated that way up until very recently in Christian history. Uh, earlier translations looked more like pedophile or uh, some other iteration of this. They're trying to scratch at the original meaning. But nonetheless, that's there, 1 Corinthians 6. And then we have 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1. And there we get another list of, of types of people who are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, the rebellious, the lawless, the godless, the sinners. And then it mentions the same word, arsenokoites, which is translated oftentimes as homosexuals. And that's put in there with kidnappers, liars, and perjurers. So you take a look at all these and you think, well, the case is pretty strong, right? It's just not okay to be gay. But here are the big questions you've got to ask yourself on your journey to understanding homosexuality in the Bible. First, what kind of behavior is really being described? You know, if you take just a few basic Bible courses on interpreting scripture, a good Bible teacher will tell you, you need to know the context the historical context of the letter or the book or the poem, and also the literary context. So what's going on around this that's informing this information? And if you go and look at it, you'll find out. Another question is, why does God condemn this kind of behavior throughout Scripture? And a last question, a really important question, is does modern homosexuality, and particularly modern gay marriage, look anything like what's being described in the ancient Scriptures? So let's take them one question at a time. First of all, what kind of behavior is being described? Uh, this is the kind of behavior in the ancient world that uh, we do see in the modern world, unfortunately. Um, but it's not the kind of thing we think about. When we think about homosexuality today in America, we're thinking about generally uh, two people who are committed to one another, who love one another, who may build a family together, uh, gay marriage, right? That's typically what we're thinking about when we talk about this today. So what is this ancient behavior? Well, you'll notice the, the lists that you get in, the, in Paul's letters, They're really rough stuff like liars and kidnappers, perjurers, and they throw in homosexuals. And you're like, what? Well, uh, how, how do those connect? One is sexual behavior, and these others are like behaviors perpetrated against other people, kidnapping someone else, uh, perjuring yourself against someone else, stealing from someone else, uh, cheating on someone else, right? It's, it's all violations that hurt other people, and then you just put homosexual in there, and it's like an identity. It's like, what does that have to do with the list? Again, we go back to context, right? It's because the kind of homosexuality being described in the Bible was just a whole different kind altogether. This kind of homosexuality was violent. It was often coercive. It was often a one-way relationship and it was never monogamous. So there are two big things you need to know about ancient homosexuality versus what we would affirm as holy and beautiful homosexuality in the 21st century. Ancient homosexuality had two problems. The first is 
it was coercive. It was not consensual. Uh, people were not able to consent to this kind of behavior. It was a one-way situation. So we go back to the example. So Genesis, for example, Sodom and Gomorrah. In that situation, you are talking about a gang rape situation. And so, of course, uh, it's coercive, it's violent, it's, it's unjust. It's perpetrating something against someone else, which would make it make perfect sense to put it in a list with liars and kidnappers and thieves because you're doing violence to someone. Similarly, the kinds of one-on-one -on -one homosexuality that's condemned in uh, the letters of Paul or even in Leviticus were also coercive, non-consensual, generally involving an older, more powerful or richer man and younger men or boys. And so that relationship could not be consensual because of the power dynamics or the age dynamics or the class dynamics. Uh, there's a great book called Paul Among the People written by Sarah Rudin. Uh, it's, a, it's not an easy read, but it's a great read as far as if you're wanting to understand the, the language and the practices of ancient Rome to understand the kind of homosexuality that's being discussed uh, when they talk about it in the Bible. Okay, so it's coercive, it's non-consensual, that's the first problem. The second problem is it's not monogamous, okay? So there was no like two men or two women getting together and committing to one another for life in a monogamous relationship in the ancient world. That wasn't the norm, that didn't happen. So if there was a gay relationship happening, it was happening in addition to your marriage and your other relationships, right? And so we see from the very beginning of scripture to the end that polygamy and polyamory just causes nothing but problems. I mean, think about uh, the story of Abraham and he has Sarai and Hagar, and uh, that just ends really poorly for everybody. It's a horrible, tragic story where Hagar is taken advantage of. Abraham has multiple partners, and it creates this schism between Isaac and Ishmael that tradition says we're still dealing with today. Or think about David, right? David's married, and he has lots of partners <laughs> in his kingdom, and that's an understatement. Uh, but then he sees Bathsheba, and he wants her, so he literally has her husband killed uh, when he gets her pregnant. We just see like tragedy after tragedy as people exit monogamy and go into polyamorous or polygamous relationships. What God is saying is that's not healthy for us. God really made us to be with one person, to commit to one person at a time. So you'll see in the New Testament, it says that like an elder like myself should be a one-woman man or a one-person person, right? That we commit ourselves to one person. Um, and sometimes those relationships don't make it, but that doesn't mean that we get to go have multiple relationships. It means we maybe have to break that relationship, but when we have another one, it's monogamous. So you can see consensuality and monogamy are two values of sexual relationships, of marriage relationships in scripture. And the kind of homosexuality that's being condemned is uh, not consensual and not monogamous. And so that sort of answers our second question as well. What, why does God condemn homosexuality in scripture? Well, it's because it's unjust. It's hurting people. It's perpetrating violence. It's sexual assault. It's not consensual. And it's not monogamous, so it's not healthy for us as human beings. So we can see the kind of homosexuality that's being condemned in Scripture. Does that look anything like modern homosexuality? Well, sometimes yes. But we could say the same about heterosexuality, right? There's plenty of heterosexuality out there that's not monogamous and not consensual. 
there is a lot of sexual violence being done in the world today. Uh, unspeakable horror, sex trafficking, pedophilia, prostitution, forced prostitution in particular. So gay or straight, sexual violence is evil. It's wrong. Coerciveness, it's wrong. And so when we're talking about gay marriage, we're talking about two people who said, like, I love you and I want to be in relationship with you and you alone. I want to grow a family with you. I don't see any reason scripturally why that's not okay. I don't see any reason scripturally why that's not holy and perfect and lovely. And particularly when I look at my gay brothers and sisters who get married, so much of the time they're the ones looking after the orphan which is one of the most important and direct commands of scripture. So what do you do when your gay brothers and sisters look more like Jesus than your straight followers of Jesus? You ask yourself some hard questions, which we've done today. Now you're right to ask, well, what about boundaries, right? Is it just a free for all? Can we just do anything? Well, no, I just explained some boundaries, right? There was this boundary of consensuality. There's this boundary of monogamy. So we do have boundaries. We're not saying it's a free for all. Uh, in the Christian tradition, we're not encouraging people to have multiple partners. It, obviously, just scientifically, medically, it's not healthy. It's dangerous. Uh, it can lead to, to diseases. It can lead to uh, mental health issues. It's not good for you. But we know that from scripture as well. So what is one way to renew your mind? I thought I'd share with you a way I changed my mind from believing that homosexuality was fundamentally wrong to uh, there are forms of homosexuality just like heterosexuality that are perfectly holy and lovely. How, how do you change your mind like that? What's one way to repent? And I believe it is that you avoid ignoring that inner voice. You know, God has created you in God's image. So God has implanted in you God's image. And God's voice is in there. Even if you don't believe in Jesus, like God's voice is in there. Your conscience is filled with God's image. And so if you have this little voice in your heart or in your mind that's saying, that just doesn't feel right, you need to explore that. Now, don't just listen to yourself. Confirm it with other people, right? Get into a tradition and the wisdom of a community and read your scriptures carefully. Like I said, it took me like a decade to change my mind on this, but read your Bible. Take it seriously. Take your Bible seriously. So many people will tell you if you're an affirming Christian that you don't like your Bible, uh, that you're ignoring your Bible. And I would tell you, absolutely not. I'm an affirming Christian because I take my Bible seriously. And because I did, I understand it way better, and I understand that small, nagging conscience voice that was telling me, it's okay. Love is love. And at the end of the day, isn't that the point? The highest law of all laws is love, and if it aligns with love, then it's okay. It's not loving to hurt someone or coerce someone. It's not loving to, to cheat on folks, to, to have multiple partners, but it is love to commit to someone and serve them as a partner. So next week, we're going to hear an amazing story of a person in church history that changed their mind in a big way. So tune in next week because we're going to talk about someone else who changed their mind. Don't miss it. But until then, I pray that you may be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern the good and perfect will of God. Amen and amen.